Good morning, everyone. I can tell we all have four-wheel drive, right, here in this crowd? I want to say that, you know, Christmas is just two weeks away because this this snow is messing me up. But I know it's Easter, right? You know it's Easter. Two weeks from the day. So that means we've got wonderful services on Good Friday. A very solemn time to remember the Lord's death on our behalf. Five o'clock and seven. And then seven different services for Easter starting Saturday night at our normal time with dinner. And then we'll be having different service times at 8, 9, 30, and 11 on Sunday morning here in this room and also across the way in the cafe. So thanks for remembering that. Thanks for using these invite cards. There's hundreds more back at the information table to to give to someone that you could invite to one of our Easter services, someone who's actually looking for a place to worship this Easter. And it's going to be a great time together. And hopefully it won't be snowing on Easter. But you never know. I, I like these movies that have these elaborate heists. I don't know what it is about me, but I just like that. I, I like those scenes where they've got all the lasers and the guy turns into a gymnast and he does this floor exercise and he or she is, you know, they're just doing all this stuff. And you go, wow. The opening scene of the movie Italian Job. You ever seen that? I love that scene. There's these mob figures up in the second story of this Venice apartment, and they're playing with their guns, and there's this picture of a big safe. And then the next thing you know, it, there's a group of guys below them that are figuring out the exact dimensions of where the safe is, and they blow out that section of the ceiling, and down comes the safe, but they get the next story down too, and it keeps going a couple of stories down till it drops into what they think is a boat that goes whipping out of that kind of... What is that, boathouse or something like that? And there's this chase scene through the the canals of Venice and all along the safes at the bottom of the garage, so to speak, underwater. They're cracking the safe. They're taking out all the bars of gold from these mob figures and the good bad guys take it from the bad bad guys. And you're going, this is great. It's great until you experience a robbery. That ever happened to you? My dad was a dental technician. One of the things he dealt with was gold. And he had a big safe right there in the entry. I, I, I just always remembered playing with that safe. Always turning the dials, clicking the handle. It was big. And one day, on a Monday morning, my dad walked into the office, and the safe had been turned on its side And these guys, these thieves, had broken in to what seemed to be this impenetrable safe and stole the gold. And it was like a whole different story. It was like what Lori felt like after college when she went and worked in Washington, D.C. for a while. And she was living in Alexandria, Minnesota. Not Minnesota, that was a far commute. Alexandria, Virginia. And one day, she and her roommates came home to the house just to find stuff everywhere. Drawers were emptied, and they'd been robbed. As much as I love the movie version, reality doesn't compare. We're going to talk about not being robbed, but actually robbing in a a construct that just is going to have a scratch in our heads and going, I never thought 
that could be happening. I never thought I could be guilty of being a thief. Last week, when we started talking about stewardship, remember what we said? We said that there's a healthy spiritual reflex that goes on in a follower of Christ. And it goes like this. When the goodness of God strikes a grateful heart, the natural reflex, the the knee-jerk reaction is generosity. We give gladly to God and to others. And the motivation for that giving is grace, God's goodness, his blessing in our lives. It's not about guilt. Today, as we look at another section of Scripture, we're going to see that when that reflex isn't healthy, it's because we've, we're ignorant to the grace of God or, or we've refused the grace of God or we've forgotten about God's blessing so that there isn't a reflex to give. Rather, there's this instinctive, unhealthy thing where we hoard it, we hold it, we become greedy. And that leads us to a dangerous place. A place that the scriptures say is a place that curses us rather than blesses us. So what I want you to do is turn your Bibles to Malachi. Now, for a bunch of us, these books of the Bible are so new to us. We didn't grow up doing the sword drills like some of us did, and we know exactly where we're going. So just go to the front page of your Bible. You'll see that table of contents, and you'll see the last book of the Old Testament is called Malachi. And in my Bible, it's on page 1070. I don't know what's in yours, but if you're using the Bible in the chair back in front of you, page 676, we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Let me help you get a feel for where we are in the Bible and, more importantly, in the history of what God's doing at this particular time. The last three books, Zechariah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are what are called post-exilic prophets. They're writing to the people of God after the exile. We just studied Daniel. Daniel was part of that first group that was carried off to Babylon. The scriptures prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah they'd be there 70 years. They came back from Cyrus' decree to settle again in the promised land, to rebuild the temple, and to enjoy life with God back where he had intended, in his place, under his rule, God's people. And when we find Malachi writing to the people of God, it's been about 100 years since they returned. It's been about 80 years since the temple was finally finished. And the people have returned back to the promised land, but what we find out from Malachi and his fellow writers, they haven't yet turned back to God. So they're in the right place physically, but they're not in the right place spiritually. In fact, they're a mess. You go back in chapter 1 and you find out it starts at the top. The leaders aren't in the right place. They're not faithfully teaching God's word. And the example that they're giving to God's people is horrendous. Some of us have been reading through, a lot of us, I hope, have been reading through all the sacrifices in Leviticus and One of the things we saw is that when you offered an animal, it was to be unblemished. It was to be a perfect animal. 
And what you read about in Malachi chapter 1 is they're letting anything go. In a sense, the people were bringing the leftovers and the priests were gladly offering up the leftovers. Spoiled food and lame and maimed animals. Second best to a God who deserved a perfect sacrifice. Goes on. There's not only unfaithfulness by the leaders, but then there becomes unfaithfulness in the people. Not surprising. They're following the lead of the leaders. And all of a sudden we find out that their unfaithfulness to God as well becomes mirrored in their relationships with each other. So we read about their unfaithfulness in the marriage relationship and how they're divorcing their wives. And then the unfaithfulness continues on so that they're not taking care of the people that God wants them to take care of. We see that in chapter 3, verse 5. God says, so I'll come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages. So that's what they were doing. They were cheating someone of their fair pay. He's going to come against those who oppress the widows and the fatherless, the orphans, the very people that are cared for. And he's going to come and visit those with judgment, those who deprive the aliens or the refugees of justice. Of those who do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And Malachi, like all the other prophets, is doing what we expect a prophet to do. He comes speaking for God, and he comes like this prosecuting attorney and says, this is what God has against you. And he starts listing them off. But he also comes with a message of hope. Return to God, and God will return to you. Turn back to God. Serve him faithfully with your whole heart. Joel, in his prophecy, captures the message of the prophet and the mercy of God, as it's so often repeated in the lives of the prophets. Job, Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And so Malachi comes to the people of God who've come back to the land, but they're not back with God. And that's why God's going to call them to come back. And in light of where they're at, at the beginning of chapter 3, right before our section, which will start in verse 6, God says through the prophet, I'm coming to visit you. And when the Bible talks about God visiting, it's not like my dad coming back to our house after he's been to Switzerland for the summer. And when he comes back, the kids know he's coming back with some Swiss chocolate. (laughs) It's going to be good. And he pulls out like the, we still have one of these Toblerones that, you know, in Switzerland, they're really big, like this big. And the kid's eyes are big, and it's all great. Grandpa's home. He's visiting us. It's not like that. When God visits, it's like what happened to me when I was a kid. My mom said, Mark, go to your room. And I knew I was in trouble. And the next thing is I heard that. Oh, man, I hated that sound of the kitchen drawer opening up. And I could just hear my mother's hand shuffling through all the utensils looking for what? That's right. See, your mother did the same thing. And when she said she was coming to visit me in my room, that was a different kind of visitation. 
And that's what frames our context today in verses 6 and following through verse 12. On either side is this context of God says, I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming in judgment, but we're going to find out he's also coming in mercy. Look at verse 6. He's just said, I'm coming. I'm coming to you to judge you for all these things that you've done to each other that are wrong, that are just mirroring that it's not right with me. Of course it's going to be wrong in your, in your relationships with each other. And he says in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Okay. So we're expecting God to say, it's because I don't change, I don't wink at sin, and I'm going to wipe you out for what you've done. But look what it says. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, Jacob gets the name Israel. These are the people of God, the Israelites. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed because he doesn't change. Why isn't God going to destroy them? Because even though he's coming in judgment, he's coming in mercy. He said back in chapter 1, verse 2, that he loves them. And he still loves them. Even if he comes in judgment, he comes with mercy too. What is mercy? Mercy's not getting what they deserve. And the mercy of God comes with this invitation in verse 7 and 8 to return. Look at it. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And that's all you have to do is you start reading through the history of God and his people. That's it, isn't it? Just like us. Short memories, so quick to turn away from God. Ever since your forefather, you've been turning away from me. And then he says, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And God counters not with an answer, but with a question. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? God says, I'll tell you how. In tithes and offerings. So this language of returning to God is the New Testament counterpart of, of repent. Have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's like, that, it's like that U-turn sign. It's like you've been going in one direction. God says, I want you to come back, follow me. You're not following me going this way. And what's surprising is the people don't think they've left. They don't think they've left. It's like the, the older couple that's riding down the road and they, they see this car in front of them, and it's really unusual. It's like one body and two heads. And all of a sudden, the wife says, wow, look at how close they're sitting. She realized it wasn't a two-headed person. It is actually two people so close together. It looked like a two-headed person. And she said to her husband, oh, honey, remember when we used to sit like that? How, how come we don't sit like that anymore? And her husband Looked to her and he says, well, honey, that's funny. I haven't moved. I haven't moved. These, these people have to ask God, well, how, what do you mean we need to return to you? We love you, God. We're serving you, God. We worship you, God. Return to you? How, how do you want us to return? And here's the surprise. When you start chasing down the lists of, 
of offenses, the charges that, that Malachi, on God's behalf, brings against the people of God. You're expecting God to say something. Okay, you want to come back? Then here's I want you to come back with a pure leadership that is faithful to my word and won't offer this junk up to me. And that you won't promise me the best and then give me the second best. I want you to come back to me by putting away this foolish unfaithfulness and adultery and commit yourself to your marriage. I want you to come back by, by being faithful to the, to the work of God and, and the people of God, the priests. And I, I want you to be faithful to the, the people that you're trashing, that you should be protecting, the widow and the orphan and the refugee. There's a lot of things we could be expecting God to say And I'm surprised when he basically says, I want you to take your wallet, all your money, and come back to me with your wallet, with your money. Hmm. I I wasn't expecting that. He says, "Bring, bring the tithes and the offerings. That's how I want you to come back. What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And God's not asking for our money because he needs it. He knows that when he has our wealth, most likely he has our heart. And that's why when Jesus was confronted by the rich young ruler who desired to follow him, the thing that he identified in his life that was keeping him from following Christ was his wealth. He said, get rid of it all. Give it all away to the poor and then follow me. And the scriptures say he went away sad. He couldn't do it. So we're surprised here. They're robbing God. How are they robbing God? They weren't giving God what belonged to him. How do you and I rob God? Well, if you look at the, the flow of the text here, starting back in verse 5, I, I think it's safe to say when we cheat people out of a fair wage, that's anybody who comes into our house to do work, that's anybody we're contracting work for in our businesses, when we cheat people out of a fair wage, this is, this is robbing God. When we're not helping out the poor, the widows, the orphans, the refugees, we're robbing God. It, it connects, doesn't it, to Matthew 25 when Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And when you didn't do it to these, you didn't do it to me. How'd they rob God? By not giving back to God what was already his. This is a really important verse as we grow in this understanding that all that we have belongs to God. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. The world is the Lord's. And all who live in it, it's all His. And when we understand that, It changes what we do with what God has given us. Now, I want us to think a little bit. Why would it be that the people back in Malachi's day 
we're guilty of robbing God. Because maybe there's a connection here for why we would do it. Number one, I think there's a level of ignorance going on because the, the scriptures go after the leaders and saying, you're not teaching the word of God and in your teaching, you're leading people astray. So they had leaders who weren't faithfully teaching the word of God and part of the teaching of the word of God would be on this whole matter of how you live your life before God and it's all of your life before him. You love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There, there aren't categories that you hold back and say, you can have this, 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 but this is my money and you can't have that. The teaching was deficient. Their example was deficient. So they're offering stuff that wasn't worthy of the God they served. So there's a deficiency in the leadership. There was a deficiency in their own heart. We, we read in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, that they've turned their hearts to idols. So their affection is on someone else, something else. And it's not surprising then that their money doesn't follow to God because that's not where their heart is. They've turned to something else for help. Their affections are set on another God. There's a third reason. They, they'd gotten used to it. They got used to cheating. They were cheating the priests out of what belonged to them. We'll look at that in just a second. They were cheating the, the poor, what they were to give to them. They, they were cheating in all these different areas in their relationships. They were cheating in their marriages. There was adultery. They were so used to it that they never even thought about, yeah, I guess I do that to God too. I think this is a big one too. You read through Malachi and you find out that God's brought a curse on them and the curse has to do with their crops. And we, we got to just think it through. Their crops was their livelihood. That was their income. And the, the, the income stream was now down to a trickle. And it was very likely for them to say, God, how can I give to you when I hardly have anything for me and my family? How, how can I, I give to you when I'm not sure there's going to be enough for us? And finally, they say, and it's right here in the text, look down at 314. Why, why should we serve you? Because you know what, God? Here we are. We're following you. But look, we're getting nailed. It's not so good down here for your people. In fact, when I compare your people to people who don't care about you, I don't see any difference. Look at verse 14. You have said, it is, this is Malachi speaking of the people. You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. I tried. We've been doing it. But it doesn't make any difference. So why bother? Why bother serving you? Why bother giving to you? A lot of reasons. And yet the law of the Lord was clear. Those of us reading through Leviticus 
in recent weeks, we read about the tithe. And the word tithe literally means a tenth. Here's an example of it. Leviticus 27, verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Holy means it's set apart to the Lord. The entire tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy, will be set apart to the Lord. And when you read about the tithe in the Old Testament, you go, wow, it was a lot more than 10%. It's more like 23%. There's a 10% tithe for the Levites, the priests. Remember, these are the guys that didn't get inheritance of land. And so the 11 tribes that had the land were supposed to give part of their crops to sustain this tribe of Levi who had been set apart to take care of God's work, God's house. There was one tithe for that. There is one tithe for the feasts, the national celebrations of God. Deuteronomy 16. There is a tithe every third year for orphans, for widows, for the poor, and also for the Levites. So when I add it all up, it's somewhere around 23% of their income annually was given back to God and to others. And Nehemiah, who was a contemporary, remember the last three books of the history, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, mirror the last three books of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they're all post-exilic. So when we're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, it's the same kind of period. And Nehemiah, contemporary of Malachi, spoke of this very thing, chapter 13. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, the priests, had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Remember these Levitical cities? They had some fields around their cities, but they didn't have big old swaths of land. So they're not being taken care of by the people of God. So they leave the work of God to go get some food for their own family. That's what's going on. And the result is, verse 9, they're under a curse. So the very inclination for us to think, I can't do this right now because I don't think we're going to have enough. God, I'm sorry, I can't trust you with this thing called my money right now because I think by holding back, not giving to you and hanging on to me, it's going to be good for me. Verse 9 says it's what? It's a curse. It's a curse. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. He's already talked about the curse back in chapter 2. Look at 2.2. Two. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you've not set your heart to honor me. And the context of the curse is all of a sudden the fields are producing the harvest that they want and need. Look at verse 11 again. What's going on in verse 11? I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your field will not cast their fruit. This is what's going on. There isn't a bumper crop. There's disease in their crops. It's all gone bad because in thinking that it would be good for them to hold on to their money for themselves, 
They've placed themselves under a curse. And the land, their revenue has been cursed. So connect the dots. How are you doing financially today? How's your business? Is it flourishing? Is it floundering? Is there any connection between where you are at financially today, personally, in your business with this principle of understanding it all belongs to God and giving back to God and to others? Is there a connection there? I can't answer that for you. But I can tell you what we all need to do in this whole matter is we need to turn back to God with a whole heart that's represented in verse 10 by the whole tithe. Have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Our our thinking could be, this is smart because I don't have a lot. And I don't know what the future holds. And yeah, it's been a good week in the market, but think about it. We're still bopping around in the sevens, and it wasn't long ago we were in the 14s, and I don't know how it's going to work. And we think in our mind, this is the smart thing to do, to just hang on to it. Because everybody else I've given my money to, it's just been going, so I've got to hang on to it. And now we have a change of mind to go, oh, that's not a good thing to do in relationship to God because it shows that we're not trusting in him. It shows that our hearts really aren't grateful. It shows that the health isn't there anymore, the reflex of generosity. We're starting to do this. So we have a change of mind and and there's a change of action that follows. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house for the priests and for the poor. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now, did you catch it? He said, bring the, what kind of a tithe? The whole tithe. So, what does that mean? If they were to bring the whole tithe, they possibly were bringing what? Part of it. So, do you get it? They were giving to God, but not all that belonged to God, and they were called robbers. So just in case you're getting comfortable, go, man, I'm glad I gave this morning. We could be givers and be robbers. I love that he puts this challenge in here. This is motivation. He says, test me in this. See if it's not going to be true. That as you bring in the whole tithe, all that belongs to me, that I will not open up the the windows and the floodgates of heaven and pour on so much blessing for you. And I think right now, I don't want to spiritualize it because the context right here is crops. Bumper crops. He says, I'll pour out so much blessing on you that you won't know what to do with it. Test me. Try me. Take me up on it. 
I think it's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you worry about, food, clothing, shelter, all these things will be taken care of. All these things will be added to you. This is the principle that is, is rooted in the Old Testament proverb, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth. How do you do that? You give him the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. God says, not only will I bless you, I'm going to stop the curse and protect your crops. Verse 11, I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops like the locusts that Joel speaks about. And the vines in your field fields will not cast their fruit. The fruit won't wither on the vine. You're going to pluck it from it. It's going to be a bountiful harvest, not a diseased one. And there's more. Blessing, yes, the curse reversed, but the mission of God moving forward. Look at verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed. And when you hear that, you've got to make a beeline back to what we looked at last week. Genesis 12, verse 3, when God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the world. And here he says, the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Why will they call them blessed? Because they will see that the God they trusted in as they gave is the God who took care of them. And it's evident as people look at the people who trusted in Almighty God. Giving to God in his kingdom is missional. It's moving forward the purposes of God so that those looking in say, wow, look at this. And they see it as they see this generosity that's moving from a grateful heart that's full of faith, that's trusting God and and experiencing the blessing of God. But let me just add a caveat here as we talk about blessing. And there's so many goofballs on TV talking about blessings of God and they don't understand. So let's just make this clear. There is nobody on earth that ever honored God more with his wealth. There was never one who never didn't bring in the whole tithe. And Jesus was under the Old Testament law. He brought it all in. And yet he died with nothing. What did he have left? He had his mother. He gave her to John, his best friend. And he had a robe. And it was stripped off his body. And they gambled for it. And that's all we know about what he had. So let's just be clear about what the Bible says about blessing. But in this context here, I think it's safe to say what's going on here. He is talking about material things. So God says, test me in this. And I'll open the floodgates. Test me in this. And I'll stop the devouring of your crops, of your income. Test me in this. Be generous to my storehouse. That my generosity, your generosity, might flow out to others. There is a time in my life where I lost sight of God's grace 
And I, I move from this kind of posture to this. It was so disordinate in my life that I turned into, in junior high, a kleptomaniac. I, I was stealing all the time. Stealing anything I wanted. Because it was all about me, my life at that point. And I was miserable. I can still see it this day. Pacing back and forth in front of the double doors that opened to the front porch on my house. And my mom was in the front porch and she was ironing. And I'm walking back and forth going, I got to tell her. Because you know what? This life of stealing, I was good. I never got caught. But I was caught by God. And there is this weight of guilt on my heart. And I had to get it off. I had to tell my mother what was going on. But I couldn't cross the threshold of the porch. And I'm walking back and forth. And finally, I make it in. And I tell my mother everything. And I told my dad later everything. And we wrote down every little thing that I could remember that I'd stolen from every store in North Evanston. And I went back. And I made it all right. I can tell you, I knew exactly what I had taken from whom I had taken it. And some of us today, for the first time, God's word comes to us and say, I I didn't know. I didn't know I was robbing from God. I didn't have a clue. Jesus says, return to me. Return to me with your money. Look, I don't, I don't like talking about money because there's so much stereotypes going on. Just, just so you're clear, if you're visiting here, um, our financial situation is really good. We're $5,000 off of our mark at this point in the year. It's fantastic. I don't like talking about this stuff. But you know what? The Bible talks about it a lot. And it keeps making a connection between my wallet and my heart. And we talk about this a lot at Door Creek, that it's, it's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. God, God isn't a category in my life. He's a he's a. God in my life, a king in my life, a, a relationship in my life that changes every area of my life, including what I think about money. And what I think about money and how I handle money says a lot about my heart. And so I'm going to challenge you to ask the question that Malachi asks, that God asks this morning. Am I guilty of stealing from God? And why? I mean, for some of us, we just didn't know. I didn't know. No one's ever told me this before. For some of us, we, if we're just honest, we're going, I feel safe when there's money in my bank account. I feel secure. I feel very vulnerable. And, I, and we understand that. But the lesson of this last year has got to be that can't be the basis of our security. It can't be the basis of our happiness, of our satisfaction, of our significance and status. And yet that's what we turn to. I'm going to dare you to take God's challenge. For some of you, it means just begin giving. Look, we're not under the Old Testament law of percentages. 
We're under New Testament grace, and God's way more concerned about the attitude of our hearts than he is the amount that we give. Because you could give for the wrong reasons in the wrong way, and it's not honoring God with your wealth. But for some of us taking the challenge, means I'm just going to begin, because I haven't done this. I haven't regularly given to God. And some of us, I'm going to encourage you to take another step. I want to show you a slide, not to produce guilt, but to help you find out where you're at and help you find out, well, where's the next level? So this slide represents the giving at Door Creek Church for the last 12 months. Not for the last month, as someone thought last night. For the last 12 months. You get it? So 537 people gave $100 or less this last year. And keep going. I want you to find yourself on that slide. Maybe you're not on the slide. They want to get on the slide. Maybe you're on the slide. And I'm not telling you to, to move from 100 to 10,000. I say, can you take the next step? Can you trust God in the next three months by taking the next step and seeing if God isn't true to his word? Take him up on it. But don't give to gain God's favor. Give because you have it or you can have it. Don't turn these principles into promises that cause us to forget how Jesus lived and ended his life and how many other faithful followers of Christ are living in extreme poverty. Do you think there aren't followers of Christ in the three billion people that live on less than $2 a day? Yeah. Why don't you close your eyes and listen to these final verses do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said, you cannot serve God in money. No man can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Paul writes, command those who are rich in this present world, that's us, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Oh God, you alone satisfy. You alone are our rock and our source of security. You alone give us significance in this world. You alone can meet all of our needs. Help us to trust you, to seek you first, your kingdom, your kingdom's purposes, righteousness, and to trust you with all that we need in this world. Loosen us from the deceptive lies that we've believed for so long. Move us towards generosity to you 
and others. May there be margin in our life financially so that as we hear and see need, we can give to it. For the honor of your name, that the people around would bless you and see that we've been blessed by you and hunger for that, for your son who comes with healing in his wings. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.